Hello, friends, and welcome to Madison BookBeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Andrew Thomas. Our guest today is Katherine Harlan for a conversation on her collection of short stories, Fruiting Bodies, published in June 2022 by Norton. Katherine is a graduate of UW-Madison's MFA program and is currently at work on her second book. She now lives in Oregon. Her work has also appeared in Strange Horizons, Lit Hub, and the Gettysburg Review. Across Fruiting Body's eight stories, Harlan deftly blends the fantastic, weird, and macabre with the sensual, tender, and mundane as we follow a cast of characters, mostly queer and mostly young women, as they navigate ever-changing bodies, ever-changing relationships with friends, lovers, and family, and a world rapidly changing due to the effects of climate change. In the opening story, Algal Bloom, two friends on the verge of their teenage years navigate their budding desire for one another while experiencing the physical and emotional effects of a forbidden late-night swim in a lake overgrown with blue-green algae. In Hunting the Viper King, homeschooled 14-year-old Dorothy and her eccentric father travel the country in their RV, hunting a mythical creature that turns out to be far more real than Dorothy ever imagined. In Fiddler, Fool, Pear, Naomi, an amateur anthropologist, routinely visits and chronicles a world adjacent to contemporary London, the world under the hill, inhabited by the mercurial fair folk, with names like Menagerie and Magpie. Here, a high-stakes game that blends poker and tarot demands players bet memories, tastes, smells, abilities, and pieces of their own bodies for a chance to win whatever they most desire. In the title story, Fruiting Bodies, mushrooms regularly sprout from Agnes's body, only to be trimmed off and used to prepare delicious meals by her lover, Geb. But these meals turn deadly when an injured but unwanted guest, Arthur, invades the privacy of their secluded lives. This story deliciously begins with the following. We all have ways of eating our lovers. I like mine over rice with vegetables and a hint of balsamic vinegar. In the evening in our kitchen, Agnes stood naked with her hands laced behind her neck. I knelt beside her and cut a mushroom from the back of her knee with a small sharp knife. I dropped it into a red plastic bowl. The evening light slid like syrup down Agnes's body. By this point, I had learned some of the topography of Agnes's mushrooms, their patterns. Her chest will sometimes grow truffles. The backs of her knees love death caps. I raised myself to a squat and took hold of the next mushroom, growing at the base of her stomach. I held it firmly as I slid my knife through the stalk. The trick, as with a straight razor, was to cut close to the skin without nicking her. We had rituals for looking after each other's bodies. When I worked construction in the summer, I would come home and lie on my stomach and let Agnes's hands smooth the knots out of my muscles. If I made hurt sounds, she would touch my chin, the side of my face. Hush, she said. Oh, hush, listen, you're home now. At home now, Agnes's skin bloomed mushrooms, and I trimmed them. Catherine Harlan, welcome to Madison BookBeat, and I'm just thrilled to be in conversation with you. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. One word that continually came to mind as I was reading Fruiting Bodies was um, sensual. I found your writing to be very sensual, but often in unsettling ways. And one of the primary characteristics that I, that I enjoyed so much about your work is this mingling of the sensual with the unsettling. Um, so the way that I first wanted to kind of dive into this collection today was thinking about this idea of, 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 the, of the sensual. So could we begin by having you just ruminate aloud for us on the connection between the sensual and the unsetting and how we might see that in this passage that I just read or just more broadly across the, across the overall collection? Sure. I mean, I think that uh, idea of sort of an intersection between the sensual and the things we find disturbing, because there definitely is an overlapping category there. Like, I think that's a lot of what a lot of really effective horror movies get at. Like, there's a lot of uh, sensual experiences that you can get at on the screen that viscerally unsettle people in a way that we clearly keep coming back to for some reason. And uh, the way I was really interested in that in Fruiting Bodies is kind of how those uh, unsettling experiences have to do with kind of how we inhabit our own bodies. Uh, that passage that you're reading uh, from the title story is, that story is definitely, I think, interested in 
what, what, what I think of is almost kind of the opposite of body horror. Um, there's a lot of body horror in the rest of the, uh, of the collection and some in that story too. Uh, and body horror being, you know, a genre of horror that often gets into people's bodies mutating in really strange and upsetting ways, but also has to do with sort of the basic human condition of living in and having a mortal body is kind of upsetting in and of itself. So in Fruiting Bodies, that story, I really wanted to get at a, something that was sort of strange and unsettling, but in a way that for the characters also had to do with this kind of sensuous pleasure. Like there's a lot about both sex and food in that story. Um, and being able to sort of find pleasure or find beauty in one's own otherness is definitely a big theme of that story and probably an underlying theme in a bit of the collection in general as it deals with sort of queer issues. Yeah, something that I was noticing that so many of the these stories, for, for folks who haven't read this yet, the, so many of these stories, they explore themes of, of changing bodies, both human and non-human. There are deceptive bodies. Um, is this person really who I think they are? Ha, have fairies come in and, and traded this baby out with, with, with a changeling? Uh, there's parasitic bodies. There's mentioning of... of cannibalism and, and 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 multiple versions of the self there was one passage in the short story where there's the protagonist is a researcher she's researching on a writer that that she admires and it says take only what belongs to you that's the name of the story but the protagonist esther uh she tells her girlfriend cora they're awake at 1 a.m one night and she says you need to read julia kristeva Julia Kristeva, she's this French post-structuralist uh, literary critic from the 1970s, and she has this essay on objection. And this is what Esther is telling Cora. It's like, hey, you should read this theory about objection. And she defines it this way, and I, and I, and I, loved, I loved this definition because it takes a kind of difficult-to-read and convoluted book, and you distilled it down perfectly into a single sentence. Esther says, the ob object is, it's the idea that sometimes when we reject someone or something violently, that is, it's because we see ourselves in it. And so again, I see, I see even in that, this idea of kind of the intimacy of, of seeing oneself in, in somebody else. And yet there's also this kind of this violent rejection. And so I think that's where some of the unsettling aspects of these stories come in. And so I, I was curious, just kind of following that, that line of thought, is there something to objection that you've seen as a guiding principle throughout fruiting bodies, this idea of seeing something in ourselves outside of ourselves and having this kind of visceral response to it. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. And actually you can, uh, you can thank my queer theory teacher for how uh, salient, saliently that was summed up. That was not an original, that was, he explained it very well and I borrowed. But um, <laughs> yeah, this idea of, you know, rejection and of a, uh, the intimacy that comes with being frightened by something or the intimacy that comes with being disgusted by something. Uh, often the things that upset us in a very visceral way, they reveal something about us. And well, I don't know that that's an undergirding theme for the whole of the collection. It's definitely a pretty big theme in a both take only what belongs to you, that story that quote is from and in fruiting bodies uh, and in, Take only what belongs to you, that uh, idea is addressing, it's a story about a sort of young scholar looking into this writer who she's found really, really influential and who discovers as she's looking into this writer that like this writer who she's thought of her work as kind of queer, that was something that was very important to her, that this writer held some pretty homophobic sentiments or at least found the idea of her own work being described as queer as very upsetting. And so one of the things the character is kind of trying to process as she's thinking about Kristeva there is uh, whether she can almost find, you know, find some sort of connection to this author, even in her disgust. Um, but I also think that uh, has to do with Fruiting Bodies, the story, uh, because that, that was part of what I was interested in getting at with the body horror in that story, that idea of kind of a disgust response and the intimacy in that. And just on a, just sort of getting down to something that's unsettling and a little gross, like mushrooms growing out of somebody's body and being able to see somebody you love or present your body to someone you love 
the particular way that being alienated from or disgusted by or unnerved by your body makes you vulnerable. And the way that someone else uh, answering that with love or finding beauty in that is, I would say, more intimate than almost any other kind of interaction you can have around your own sort of self-consciousness. It, it, it's such a tender story uh, in, 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 a, in a lot of ways. And, and, and the relationship between the two women is so is so tender. And what's so fascinating about that that story, though, is like as it progresses, the character who does not have the fruiting bodies growing on her, on her, who's trimming them off of her lover, at a certain point, it almost seems to be kind of like a parasitic relationship, and that and that she is is, or at least that that's kind of what it was seeming to me as these characters navigate um, the possibility of expanding their their kind of domestic life, allowing other people to come in. The one character, Geb, is very much trying to protect and, Agnes. And Agnes, that, that, that's, that's right. Geb is trying to to protect Agnes, and so it's it's a moment of finding something that might otherwise be repulsive, finding pleasure, finding finding that body desirable, uh, but it also kind of bleeds into the parasitic, and 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 I felt like that there were a number of moments throughout this collection where the idea of kind of feeding on other bodies, whether that's literal, whether, whether that's um, meta- metaphorical, that seems to come up too. I know in the story, um, is this you, uh, the protagonist, she's meeting a bunch of different versions of her younger self. And her mother has been documenting her um, struggles with mental health throughout her life. And there seems to be a kind of parasitic relationship that the mother has has with the daughter as well. And so what is thinking about these kind of relationships where there is tenderness and then there is love, but then it also kind of moves into the to the parasitical, to the there's life giving and then and then there's life taking. Your stories don't seem to offer any clear resolution on that, but these are ideas that you seem to be dealing with yeah, yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. And I, I mean, part of that honestly probably comes down to, for a long time, I've thought parasites were cool. They're cool animals. I like to learn about them. I like to write about them. There's a, one of the stories, The Changeling, has a lot of stuff specifically about a parasitoid wasps. And I, I would like to say, you know, it ended up working with the imagery of that story and the themes, I think, very well. But I'd like to say I had some kind of grand philosophical reason for bringing that metaphor in. And I'd read a lot about wasps and I thought they were really cool. So some of it, I think, probably is genuinely just that. But especially uh, in Fruiting Bodies, you mentioned, I mean, part of what I wanted to do there was to not unequivocally say, like, this is a perfect, healthy relationship. Like, yeah, but Agnes both act in some ways that, you know, if one of my friends were dating someone who acted that way, I would suggest they reconsider that relationship. And I think that's in part because it's a story that uh, leans a lot on kind of the gothic. That idea about Kristeva and objection, I learned that way back when, when I was uh, researching my thesis on the work of Shirley Jackson and um, the queer gothic. And one thing that I read a lot about while doing that research was this idea that gothics were some of the first places that uh, modern queer characters really showed up. Like some of the first places you can find instances of our modern understanding, like a gay man, a lesbian woman, a trans person, are as these kind of horrific monsters in gothics. Like, there'll be this horrible nun that seduces the young girl who comes to stay in her convent, or this, like, wicked man who, along with all of the cannibalism and other evil he does, is also a sodomite. And a lot of the scholarship around queerness and the gothic gets into how, because it sort of distances us from these abnormalities or these things our society finds disturbing with fear, with putting them in the place of something that's horrific, it lets us talk and think about these sort of taboo desires that really don't have a place or didn't at the time have a place in kind of polite society. And so one of the major things I wanted to get at in Fruiting Bodies, the story, was this kind of gothic setup of, you know, there's this pretty normal kind of 
typical hero-like man who comes across this very strange situation, isolated in the woods, and the women are behaving oddly, and you don't know quite what's wrong with them. But I wanted to recenter that from, you know, their experience of that. And I still wanted to keep a bit of the oddness and unnaturalness and horror that I think comes with the Gothic, which is part of why they are very imperfect people. But I was interested in kind of switching where the empathy in those stories rested and putting it with the monster. Also, perfectly healthy relationships. Those are boring. Yeah, you know that, 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 that they're, they're unrealistic and they don't make for they, they don't make for good reading. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting hearing you talk about the gothic, because, again, as I was reading these stories, I was describing them uh, to some of my friends as I was reading them. I was describing them as 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 like weird tales, some of them <laughs> as as fables, some of them as kind of an amalgamation of different kind of myth traditions. I kind of picked up on a lot of like Christian imagery or symbolism throughout. And I know classifying things by genre is always limited, but I'm curious to know kind of what do you see that type of genre, that type of storytelling allowing you to do that maybe potentially like just kind of like a more realist um, narrative style wouldn't wouldn't allow for? Yeah, I, I mean, I, for one thing, I grew up and have always sort of read literary fiction and kind of fantasy horror science fiction on sort of equal terms. And I, <laughs> I learned pretty late that I was supposed to sort of look down on genre as like less intellectual. And by the time I'd learned that, I had read enough really good genre that I wasn't buying in. So I uh, have always wanted to draw on both kind of the traditions of literary fiction and the tropes and styles of sci-fi, horror, fantasy, fables, etc. Partly just because I think both of those are genres that have a lot of merit and there's no real reason to keep them separate. But in terms of your specific question about like what ideas or craft elements being able to bring a fantasy element in unlocks, I think very little of what we do on the page is actually concrete realism. I mean, even the concrete realism that we write is more making itself look like realism than like one of the first things I tell my students about dialogue as a write as a, a writing teacher is you want to write dialogue that sounds like natural dialogue, like people will think it sounds like how people talk, but not actually how people talk because the way people talk wastes a ton of time and I think that being able to bend sort of literal reality in your stories lets you get at these kind of emotional truths or descriptions of the human experience that are true or then that you can convey in more detail and maybe with more honesty if you aren't worried about imposing realism on them, if you're able to sort of uh, make a metaphor concrete or let a... Um, kind of fantasy elements stand in for something the characters are experiencing or what have you, or even just uh, you want to set up the story in a way that realism wouldn't allow for. Like, I actually didn't know until I had finished writing Viper King whether uh, it was going to be a realistic story or not, essentially whether the Viper King was going to really be there or not. And the thing that made the decision was I just realized it couldn't end a different way that if it if I had tried to end it as a realistic story it would be a different and much more boring one and I will put a plug in here the Viper King was by far my favorite story I love them all but um <laughs> the the ending of the Viper King was extremely good for this very reason is that I was not anticipating to actually see the Viper King make an appearance Something else that I really loved about these stories was the fact that it was like a short story collection. There was something about just the form of the short story. Most of these are 30 to 40 pages, so it's it's a pretty limited amount of time and space uh, to, to, to tell a story. And as readers, we're given such limited knowledge of the characters, such limited knowledge of the world that they're in. And, and so many of these stories, they, they, they come to a natural conclusion, but, uh, so, so many of the, the events I feel like are kind of left unresolved or open-ended. So Catherine Harlan, can you talk to us a little bit more just about as somebody who's also working on a novel right now, and hopefully we can talk about that uh, a little bit. 
What did you see the short story as a form, as a literary form, allowing you to do? Um, and what were what were either affordances, things that the short story opened up, and what were what were drawbacks? Thank you. And I mean, I think what's really fantastic about the short story, or at least what I love it for, is the way you can use it as sort of a snapshot of a moment in a character's life. Like I, I tend to think of short stories, and of course this applies differently to all of them, but of really trying to fully tell the story of kind of one moment in time. And I, I think sort of the biggest examples of that are sort of uh, Algal Bloom or Endangered Animals are both of these, these stories that, while certainly the plot events of the stories are important and change for the characters occurs within the stories because that's what makes a story. A lot of the actual page space is just going to setting up the background and then taking you through the very brief trip a character is taking from point A to point B, but giving you as complete a picture of sort of what they're feeling and what their experience in that moment is. You can zoom in with a short story in a way you can't with a novel. So even if you can't cover as much ground, the ground you're covering, you can feel like you've covered it pretty completely. I also, you know, I think a short story works best in terms of kind of taking a moment out of a character's life or taking how you felt at a particular moment and sort of trying to convey that. I mean, I, I think some of the stories in their algal bloom was a lot of me trying to get in very specific terms to how it felt to have had this place in my childhood that was really special and nostalgic to me once and how it felt for that place to have changed kind of irreparably and the other things that were going on in my life when that happened such that they kind of informed that change and it's not a perfectly autobiographical story but my goal when i set out to write it was like I have this feeling that I can't describe in, you know, normal sentences. I'm going to take 40 pages to really get it in there. And so I, I think short stories work really well if you have a narrow scope. And if the thing you want to get at is like, how does it feel to be 14 and on the road with your dad doing an insane thing? Or how does it feel to be, you know, in your 20s and dealing with your horrible relationship with your mother. Um, and whereas I think novels have a bit more room to follow someone through a progression or through different stages or places in their lives, um, and also tend to have a bit more room for more people. The super like oversimplified metaphor I use for it is like, a short story is a trip from point A to point B. You know, you can decorate that path as nicely as you want. You can have an interesting tour guide, but ultimately you are going from one place to another. And a novel's more like a walking tour. Like you can take your time, you can go off road a little bit and the destination can still make or break the trip, but it's not the whole thing. Whereas with, the, with a short story, I think a lot rests on getting kind of that one moment in it perfect. Yeah. And I, I think that's why so many of these stories um, are, are so captivating because you've managed to create just these beautifully strange moments. None of the characters overlap in the short stories, but there, there, there is a thread of connection that runs through all of them. And I, and I feel that they are in conversation with one another. Uh, you are listening to Madison Bookbeat, and I'm your host, Andrew Thomas. And today we are talking to Catherine Harlan about her 2022 short story collection, Fruiting Bodies. Catherine, in your description of your stories, something that was coming out and something that I noticed as I, as I was reading is that there really is a tenderness toward younger people and, and often younger versions of ourselves, uh, which is something that I, I really enjoyed as I was reading. And many of these stories involve young people navigating strange relationships with parents or grandparents and the environments that they grew up in. Would you mind reading? This is the passage uh, on page 84. It starts on 84. Oh, and this is, uh, this is from the short story, Take Only What Belongs to You. And uh, the protagonist in the story, Esther, she is the one who is researching a, a writer that she's very much idolized. Um, and she 
in this moment, uh, she's kind of having a flashback thinking about uh, someone that she knew in, in elementary school. When Esther was in elementary school, her best friend was Hope. It's miraculous to her now the way that childhood friendships run because she couldn't name for all the money she's ever had a single thing she and Hope had in common. They had gone to the same school for only one year before Hope's parents opted for homeschooling instead, but they were friends longer. Esther was dimly aware that Hope's family was Christian fundamentalist. Her awareness of what that meant was even vaguer, except that she had a list of forbidden topics of conversation that included dinosaurs, trick-or-treating, ghosts, and politics. Of course, the omissions mattered more as they got older. Slowly, the list became longer or more relevant or both. Esther lost touch with Hope entirely sometime in high school, but for a while before that, they saw each other a couple times a year. Esther had a fantasy around then, when she thought that she was very wise and very worldly and Hope lived in a glass coffin. Hope would be visiting her, sitting on her pink quilted coverlet, and then she'd say that she wanted to read Esther's books. She felt as if the world was keeping a secret from her. Her face would be pale and sweet as cake frosting, and Esther would trip over herself, pulling down books from the shelves, scrambling to finally, finally give them a common language again. She would start Hope with Anais, open the book in her lap, pressing warm shoulder to warm shoulder on the bed until their bones slid together. Or, after reading several stories, Hope would confess, haltingly, like she barely knew the words for it. She would say, I think there's something wrong with me, and then just sit there, trying to chip language out of the silence. Esther would listen to her like a doctor, waiting for Hope to hook and dredge out all her feelings. And then she'd say, it's okay. It's actually okay. She'd put her arms around Hope, and she'd kiss her just to show her that it was. Time and again throughout these stories, um, I, like I said, there, there, there's just a, there's a very strong sense of gentleness and tenderness towards these, these younger versions of, of ourselves, towards, towards younger people, and an acknowledgement of the difficulties of what it's like uh, being in a changing body, going through changing emotions, being what it's like to be queer um, and, and, and young and in these various uh, environments. Um, something that I found really fascinating is that through many of these stories, there was, there was this kind of mentioning of uh, Christian evangelicalism. I think at one point, like uh, one of the characters uh, in the stories mentions that Fox News is on in the background. Um, Dot and Hunting the Viper King, you know, she's homeschooled and her dad seems a little bit like a prepper. Um, and, you know, another story mentions like vaccine exemption cards. And so a lot of these, a lot of these young characters um, are growing up in these, um, you know, conservative politically and, re and, and religiously and politically conservative homes. And I was just wondering if, if, if you could talk a little bit more about that. Is, is that something that, 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 that you've personally experienced? Is, is, or, or is that something that you've just kind of imagined what it would be like to go through as a young queer person in these, in these environments? I asked because I was somebody, I was raised in a Christian evangelical home and I was homeschooled. And so, so many of these stories, like it, they registered for me in, in, in a really strong way. And so I was curious what was behind some of these characters' home environments. I thank you for asking that. And I also thank you for mentioning that those uh, registered with you. That means a lot. I, it, it's sort of a mixed bag on how much those come from personal experience. Um, my parents themselves are pretty left-wing, uh, kind of the agnostic to casual Christian range. But my grandparents, uh, who my dad and I lived with from when I was about 10 to when I moved out, were very conservative, pretty Christian. Uh, the, the sort of way I sum up my grandmother's house for people is she would have Rush Limbaugh on all the radios and Tucker Carlson on all the televisions. And they'd be playing in different rooms, just slightly out of sync. So it was a little bit like a brainwashing chamber. Uh, so... I, to a certain extent, grew up uh, surrounded by that, but I think also with enough separation from it uh, and enough of sort of a safe place to escape to for myself that it felt kind of like this strange thing going on just outside of my life that I was not really invited into, but that clearly had a really big impact on a lot of the people in my life and how they saw things. 
as I got older and, you know, figured out my own queerness, which I did while still living with my grandparents, and I never came out to them. I don't really know how that would have gone if I had, but regardless, um, in figuring those things out, th this thing gradually shifted from just this background political noise that I knew vaguely that my parents disagreed with and that as I developed my own opinions, I knew vaguely that I disagreed with, but that I didn't think of as affecting my life much to these people being the voices of hate movements that very much affect my life as an adult and very much affect the life of every queer person out there. And coming to that realization, especially when you're still in a home with people you love, who you know love you, who also believe these things, is a particularly strange coming of age experience. And I think one a lot of queer people have. Yeah, the difficult relationships that happen, that arise between parents and children, grandparents and children, these difficult um, ways of navigating change and uh, the changing, our changing bodies, the changing environment. So many of these did seem, because they were with younger people, it was often, they, they were these difficult relationships with, with adults in their lives. And I know... I know the protagonist in uh, "Is This You, Mara?" You know she's she's in an in in an estranged relationship with her mother, and so um, that seemed to be something that a lot of these stories came back to. Absolutely, and uh, I think you know part of that is I wrote all of these stories between when I was God about eighteen and twenty three, so these were very much written you know during a coming of age period for me as well, and I think. Some of that is just a lot of these experiences were very fresh for me. I think uh, some of that, you know, tenderness with younger people came into the book in part because I was just sort of processing my own experiences as a teenager and sort of thinking about the ways like I wish I could talk to myself back then, the ways I wish I could talk to young people who are in a similar place to where I was then. Um, and so I think that probably comes through in the book and in part because, you know, if I had an ideal outcome here, it would be that some of those young people come across this book and it gives them an insight that I could have used back then. Um, but point being, uh, I, I think that relationships with parents, you know, come into it fairly often because that's part of growing up and leaving the home and obviously there was some conflict there for me. My relationships with my parents are pretty good, but you know, you're a teenager, you go through that coming of age period, everyone has stuff. But right. I also think that, um, you, you mentioned Is This You, that particular story, and, and part of what I was interested in there, and this is something less from personal experience and more just from a, you know, being a queer person, knowing other queer people, especially other queer young people who are still navigating that, Something I think about a lot is the amount of control that are, the amount of absolute control that our society gives parents over children and the amount that we kind of concede that up until a child is 18, at least, and often after that, sort of whatever the parent wants or needs from the kid within some pretty limited boundaries is okay with us as a society. And it's not as if I have a suggestion on how to do that differently, but especially for queer kids or kids for who other reasons are more likely to be rejected by their parents, that can be really dangerous. And uh, Is This You, that story was actually, of all things, based on a think piece I happened upon where a woman was uh, describing, you know, she was someone who made part of her living writing about parenting. And one of the things the, the subject of this piece was essentially, my daughter has asked me to stop writing about her and here's why I'm not going to. And I just couldn't get that out of my head after that because, and I don't remember this woman's name and I have no interest in, you know, uh, calling her out. Like I never read any of her other work. I have no other context, but that particular sentiment of sort of, I have a right to write about my child's experiences because they're also my experiences in part, I agree with that. And also in part, that feels deeply invasive to me because the child doesn't really get any say in that or in 
what those experiences look like. And one of the things I wanted to get into in Is This You, and actually to a lesser extent in Hunting the Viper King, is the ways that parents are really able to determine the terms of reality for their child. Like they're able to determine how their kid can interact with the world and how the world interacts with their kid. And both of those stories, I think, explore a bit of what happens when a parent is not even malicious, but not necessarily super well-equipped to handle that uh, position fairly. Yeah, particularly in the is is this you or the mother continues to to write to write about her daughter and her her mental mental health struggles that that was yet another moment where i kind of saw th- this idea of, of of kind of being a parasite of one person being a parasite on, on on another it came up in 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 this story as well something else that that story really got me to think about is the mother she's a writer and she publishes this collection of essays that are all each essay is about a different year of of, of raising of raising her daughter. And so it's mm-hmm. it's deeply, deeply memoiristic on the mother's part, but it's also revealing revealing a lot about the daughter. And another 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 theme that I saw kind of throughout so many of these stories is that you're writing about queer women and their relationship to language. And so so many of these the women in these stories are they're writers or they're researchers, they're in libraries, they're in universities, they're in archives, they're writing essays, they're publishing books. Um, and they range, some are in the sciences, some are, some are in the humanities. And I know in your own acknowledgments, you mentioned what a strong role, like Shirley, and you've already mentioned her in her kind of role in, in the Gothic, but Shirley Jackson was was a really strong and guiding influence on on, on mm. you as as a writer. So what I'd like to do is I'd like us to read another passage and then we'll, we'll kind of think about the role that 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 writing and um, language serves for, for so many women in this. So this is a this is passage two on page 11. Oh, yes, absolutely. If I were to diagnose something special about that summer, other than the omnipresence of death, I would say it was the last year before language reached all the parts of me, before words started knocking softly on my head, trying to get in. When I think about it, when I think about Vienna, this is where my mind goes more often than not. To naming, the things that it has made less frightening and the things it has obscured, and what was different, a little, when I had nothing to call it. Even accurate words you don't live in, the way you don't live in a photograph of your house. So kind of, could you just talk to us a little bit more about how language or or various literary traditions or, or just the act of writing functions for, for some of these various characters in Fruiting Bodies? Because... I feel like in almost in every short story in here, there is some direct reference to somebody being a writer, somebody in engaging with language in, in meaningful and, and, and powerful ways. Absolutely. So I, I think one of the kind of biggest themes, probably the one that shows up in the most of these short stories, is sort of the characters' relationships to knowledge and to language, to uh, what they know and how they think about what they know or how they put it into terms. And... That's mostly because that was something I was really interested in exploring the kind of different angles of uh, how our sort of ideas of ourselves, our ideas of other people, our ideas around about the world and how we put those things into words for ourselves, how all of that changes how we interact with things. I That specific passage is sort of about, well, the ways that language is such a necessary tool for communication, for describing oneself. I, I think this is something that a lot of queer readers who, uh, you know, started reading books about queer people fairly young experienced this sort of moment of, oh, there's a word for what I am. There, like, there's a word for this. This is something that other people have experienced. This is something I can describe with language. Like that's so validating and necessary to creating a community, to creating a self-definition, to anything that requires you to communicate with other people. But also, I think a lot of people who've ever had to label themselves in one way or another, whether that's a sexuality label or a gender label or a diagnosis or anything, I think you also come up against the reality that no, a label's a word, and it's a word we put together as a society, and 
people are very individual and no word is going to fit exactly the same way for every single person who uses it. And, you know, within queer communities, you see people kind of erupt in these little fights about like, what exactly is a lesbian or who and who, who does and doesn't count as queer or whatever. And I think a lot of that has to do with, we have this language to describe ourselves, but it's imperfect and it leaves things out and it requires oversimplification sometimes. And so we project our own feelings about what that language means for us and assume that it means the same thing for everybody else and miscommunication happens and et cetera, et cetera. But basically I wanted to, in that story and I think in other stories that touch on this idea, look at both how necessary words for things are and the ways that settling on those words do limit us. You're listening to Madison Bookbeat, and I'm your host, Andrew Thomas, and today we are talking with Catherine Harlan about her short story collection, Fruiting Bodies. You know, Catherine, I couldn't help but think of Lakes Monona and Mendota when I was reading your first story, Algal Bloom. It's a story about a... Uh, perhaps a favorite childhood lake that you return to it and realize that it has drastically changed irreparably. And uh, to many Madison listeners, we are very familiar with algal blooms in all of our lakes here. And so I just kind of thinking about that, I'm curious to know what your time was like at UW Madison as a, as a writer in the MFA program and if Madison or Wisconsin influenced your your writing process or your storytelling at all. Absolutely. And I before I get into the program, I actually I do have a funny little story about the lakes. Um, so that uh, that story is set where my family actually did have a little cabin for a while in the Sierra Nevadas. Um, but I was living in Madison when I was writing it. And I actually think I got the idea from hearing about an algal bloom sort of nearby. Uh, and in researching algal blooms, you know, one of the things I came across was one of the images that shows up in the story. They cause these mass die-offs of marine life. You know, you'll see, like, if you look up pictures of them, it's very upsetting, but very interesting. You'll see like tons of dead fish floating next to each other. And I had never seen one of those in real life. I was writing based off of like Google images and Wikipedia articles. And uh, on the, I, I might be remembering this wrong because it's too perfect, but I think I'm right. On the day I finished that story, it was, you know, a nice warm day in Madison. Uh, I think it was just about to be summer. And so like snow had cleared up, sun was out. And I decided I would go down to the lake because I happened to live pretty near it and maybe like go wading a little bit. And I got down to the lake right where we had a little beach near where my apartment building was. And I start taking on my shoes and I look out of the water and a dead fish starts floating toward <laughs> me. And I go, okay, um, maybe not right here. And I move down the beach a bit. Five more of those things come in. At which point I decided this was a sign that I should not go swimming. But <laughs> I, I thought that was a very funny coincidence. Um, your real question, though, was about uh, Madison and how that kind of influenced my writing. And I... Well, that sounds really like a very direct just... influence, though, like a very direct confrontation oh, yeah, with, with, with with death and uh, probably something many Madisonians uh, are, are uh, have experienced before. Yeah. And I... Uh, it, it's it's hard to even put into words the ways in which Madison influenced my writing because I'd say a lot of it came from the community there and the school there. There's a um just a really wonderful writing community in Madison and a really wonderful community of alumni connected to the MFA program, alumni like connected to the English department. I just had the experience of having these teachers who were able to give me these fantastic insights, but also having all these local authors, local bookstore owners, just all of these people who were very eager to talk about writing, to be, to participate in writing related events or readings or whatever. Uh, and to, you know, when I was able to kind of finally publish my book, like to support me in that, to have me for interviews or let me launch my book at the local bookstore. And so, uh, kind of the literary community in Madison was just indispensable to me becoming a writer. It's one of those things that 
I think is kind of the best you can hope to get out of an MFA program, uh, finding other people who are really talented writers who are willing to give you honest feedback and who can continue to support you as you kind of go out into the world. In terms of sort of just the city itself and how that influenced me, I think honestly one of the big things is I'd never lived anywhere outside of California. So I, I had a, a very limited view of a lot of things that moving out to Madison for instance, uh, my very first winter there, I did have to shovel my car out with a mixing bowl uh, <laughs> because I had not bought a shovel. So a lot of new life experiences and also getting an idea of, you know, how people somewhere else in the country were and what living in a very different city from L.A. was like. So expanding my own horizons a little bit. And I think most of all, my time at Madison gave me the time to focus on writing and like an atmosphere in which to do it with this literary community and all these great coffee shops. I, I miss Madison's coffee shops. <laughs> and I think I wrote almost all of Fruiting Bodies at Michelangelo's. So that was an influence. Wow. That's a, that, 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 that's quite an endorsement. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we are in conversation right now with Catherine Harlan, author of the 2022 short story collection, Fruiting Bodies. Catherine, in the, in the few minutes we have, I, I'd like to talk a little bit, you, you know, you were mentioning just about what it's like to approach your body of water, want to get into it, and then realize that there are giant algae blooms in it. There are dead fish floating. <laughs> Something that that is in the background of so many of, of, of your stories, and it's addressed explicitly in the opening and closing story, but it also just seems to kind of be in the background, is just the ongoing effects of anthropogenic climate change. I really like your stories because I do not feel that they are didactic in any way. I don't feel like I'm being like taught a lesson about the changing environment, the changing world. And personally, I think that's something that your short stories do really well across the different kind of genres that you're that you're dipping your toes into um, in each of these stories. And so what was it like to write about these effects of climate change, um, of, of having characters kind of experience things that may not be around it. Like in, in your final story, the, the, the two, the two characters go to see the receding glaciers at Glacier National Park, knowing that they very well may not be there in, in, in 2030. And so in some ways your stories are deeply intimate and deeply personal, but they're also taking into account these, these, these global, these global environmental changes. And so it's at one point very particular and then also kind of almost unimaginably big. And so, um, yeah, could you just talk a little bit more about addressing some of these, these climate issues in your, in your short stories? Yeah, for sure. I, uh, I didn't, what, what's interesting is I, I didn't really set out to write about climate change in any particular way. I, I mean, I didn't set out to write a connect a collection at all. Initially, these all kind of came together, but I did know that I was sort of writing something that had a lot of the stories in it had a lot to do with uh, coming of age, both in sort of the literal sense, you know, there are a lot of stories about teenagers going through those coming of age moments, but also older people, people who are young adults, I think we still have these coming of age moments where you realize that you were naive to something or that you are still growing into something that you maybe weren't aware of before. And for me, and I think for a lot of other young people, you know, both a bit older and definitely everyone younger than me, climate change is just part of that. Like, whether we want it to be or not, I grew up in Southern California, so I grew up, you know, surrounded by worsening forest fires. We all just lived through a pandemic that has a lot to do with climate, with anthropogenic climate change and uh, the, you know, shrinking of inhabitable habitats for wildlife. Um, and so I think this sense that, you know, this enormous thing is happening in the background of your life, probably something every generation goes through to a certain extent. But I think the particular nature of climate change is such that it it's so big and it's so menacing in, in terms of what the potential consequences of leaving it unchecked could be. And so few people who are you know, growing up right now are in any position to do much of anything about it. Like we all obviously need to do what we can, but 
many of us are pretty young and have little access to power and there's not a ton we can do yet. And that feeling of just, I'm growing up into a world that almost seems like it's ending is such a, I think, quintessential part of coming of age right now. And one that I wanted to kind of get at with as much sort of honesty as I could about this, because I think it has such an effect on you as a young person to feel that, you know, the world is changing and that there are decisions being made right now that you really have no say over that you will feel the consequences of 10, 20, 30 years down the line. And knowing that and still having to kind of go about your day to day, go to your classes, go for a walk, whatever, it's a really existentially interesting experience. And it, it, it's one that I found I wanted to write about. And something too that I, I really like about your short stories is that in no way do they feel naive. And yet life does go on in very strange and unexpected ways. And in so many of your stories where you're talking about where things break down and decompose and then life comes from death. And so on the one hand, I feel this kind of urgency about the climate crisis. On the other hand, your stories seem to also kind of be wrestling with these kind of messy and unpredictable ways in which life is going on and and will continue, even though these apocalyptic, almost cataclysmic events seem to be happening. I really enjoyed how, how your stories kind of hold that tension really well. Thank you. And I, I something that I really love in literature and that I'm interested in getting at in my own work is this sense of uh, how do we find you know beauty, hope, meaning when everything is really f***ed up? Uh, how do we find beauty? How do we find meaning? How do we find reasons to keep living and keep trying to be there for other people. And I wanted to, especially I think in uh, those two stories that bookend the collection, part of what I wanted to get at was, I mean, I, I have definitely over the past few years, and I get, would guess a lot of other people have had a similar experience, had my own moments of where can I find meaning in this? Like, where can I find any sense of purpose or any reason to not despair? And I wanted to, in these stories, get at, you know, even when I don't know the answer to what we should hope for in the future, there are still moments of beauty worth experiencing in the present. I think on that note, we can wrap up. So today we've been in conversation with Catherine Harlan, whose 2022 short story collection, Fruiting Bodies, out now, um, published by Norton. Um, Catherine, it's been a pleasure having you on Madison Bookbeat. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. You've been listening to Madison Bookbeat, and I'm your host, Andrew Thomas. Thanks to our receptionist, Amy, uh, talk producer, Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director, Shali Pittman, and sound engineer, me, Andrew Thomas. Coming up next is Three Hours of Jazz with Alex Wilding White. Keep it here on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Madison.